picture you see behind me portrays something that is probably familiar to a lot of you. And some of you have probably been here. It is definitely one of the most important stops on any trip to Israel. This is what has become known as the Western Wall. In the year 19 BCE, Herod the Great began a massive expansion project on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He began by expanding the size of the top of this mountain by double. And in order to do so, he had to build massive retaining walls in order to hold all the stuff that he had to fill in the ground with. This project was so ambitious that it probably wasn't finished until the reign of Herod's great-grandson, Agrippa II. Herod was a perfectionist when it came to his building projects. The standards to which his projects were held are really insane to think about when you consider the fact that 2,000 years ago he did not have any of the construction technology that we have today or any of the modern engineering schools. Can you flip to the next? In this next picture, you see that there are different types of stones as you go up this wall. The seven courses of stones that are highlighted in this black box are all Herodian stones. The ones right above it, there's some, they're still kind of big. You might be able to see that. Those are put in later in about the 7th or 8th century. And then the stones on the top that are the smallest were added during the Ottoman period more recently. What you can't see from this picture is that these Herodian stones, these seven courses of Herodian stones, actually in, uh, keep going underground for another 17 courses. The Herodian stones are between two and eight tons apiece on average. They fit together so tightly that today, 2,000 years later, after countless earthquakes, you still cannot fit a piece of paper between these stones except for in the places that it's crumbled. Herod was such a perfectionist that each of these stones have these borders carved onto them that are about a half an inch thick or a half an inch deep. They're about two to eight inches uh, varying in, in width. There's one stone down on the very bottom, on the bottom level, that looks like it might have been the first stone placed. It's called the Master Course, and it is 570 tons. That means each of us in this room that have a pickup could chain our pickups to this rock, and we probably couldn't move it. And Herod did this 2,000 years ago. Modern engineers still don't know how he did the stuff that he did. You can go back to that first picture. And so now that we know what's gone into this, this Western wall, let's ask the question of why it's considered so holy and why it's so well known. You see in the picture up in the corner that the Dome of the Rock stands just above this Western wall. The Dome of the Rock was built in the 7th century, probably in the same location that the Jewish temple once stood. And the Jews, after the temple was destroyed, they tended not to go onto the Temple Mount because for anybody to enter the Holy of Holies, except for the high priest on one day of the year in Yom Kippur, it meant instant death, they thought. And so since they don't know the exact location of the Holy Holies, the Jews will not go up on the Temple Mount. And so the safest place for them to gather, that is the closest to where that temple was, became this wall. 
This wall became a place of prayer and gathering and devotion for almost two millennia to this point. Please stand as I read to you our scripture for this day. And you, passers-by, look at me. Have you seen anything like this? Have you ever seen pain like my pain? Have you seen what he did to me, what God did to me in his rage? He struck, to me, struck me with lightning, he skewered me from head to foot, then he set traps all around so I could hardly move. He left me with nothing. He left me sick and sick of living. He wove my sins into a rope and harnessed me to captivity's yoke. I'm goaded by cruel taskmasters. The master piled up my best soldiers in a heap then called in thugs to break their fine young necks. The master crushed the life out of fair virgin Judah. For all this, I weep. I weep buckets of tears and not a soul within miles around cares for my soul. My children are wasted. My enemy got his way. Zion reached out for help, but no one helped. God ordered Jacob's enemies to surround him, and now Jerusalem is like a piece of garbage to him. This is a piece of the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Some of you have probably heard the term wailing wall in reference to the Western Wall. When the Roman Empire became Christian in 324, they have control of Jerusalem. And for 314 years to 638, they barred the Jewish people from entering the city of Jerusalem. They did allow the Jews to come in on one day of the year. And on this day, the Jewish people would dress themselves in sackcloth and ashes, and they would make their way slowly to the Western Wall. And when they got there, they would cry and pray and lament. And those Roman Christians began to refer to the Western Wall derisively as the Wailing Wall. This sermon series has been tracing pieces of the history of Jerusalem. And we begin with a few stories of wonder. We had stories of the blessing and the birth of the city, protection. But now we've come to stories that seem to have not gone the way that were divinely ordained. If this city, Jerusalem, is the center of worship for the one true God, then why wouldn't this God protect it? Would God not stand up for the city in the face of her enemies, both those external and internal? If this is the city of David, the city of promise, the city of the temple and devotion and sacrifice, the city of God's divine presence, then God, you would think, would want that city to stand for all time. And there is verse after verse in the Bible of God's intention to protect his chosen people. For example, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. It is you the Lord has chosen. Today the Lord has obtained your agreement to be his treasured people as he promised you, for him to set you above all other nations. 
To King David, he said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Lord dwells in Zion. Behold our shield, our God. The Lord is my shepherd. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. The Lord has heard me and all my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror. And yet this shield, this shepherd, this strong tower, this refuge, this God allows calamity after calamity to befall these chosen people. This city has been sacked at least nine times. I mentioned that there was one day a year that the Roman Christians allowed the Jews to come into the city. This day is known as Tisha B'Av. Tisha means nine, so this is the ninth of Av. And Av is a Jewish month. It's the 11th month on the calendar. It usually falls on our calendar in July and August, so we actually just passed it on August 1st of this year. And the reason that the Jews were allowed this one day a year to enter the city was because this was a one day the Jews do nothing but mourn. Here's just a little bit of what had happened on Tisha B'Av in their history. Traditionally, it's told that on Tisha B'Av, at the beginning of the Exodus, the spies came back from the Promised Land. When the spies came back from the Promised Land, they told the people that the land was filled with fortresses and giants and this land was impenetrable. The people cried out that they would rather return to slavery in Egypt than even attempt to go into the promise. And because of this, they were forced to spend 40 years in a desert and an entire generation died before they finally entered the promise. Centuries later, in 586 BCE, the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem. They broke through the walls, they leveled the city, and then on Tisha B'Av, they completely destroyed Solomon's temple. Time goes by, they rebuild the temple. Herod the Great comes along and makes the temple magnificent. But they had just barely finished when the Romans then laid siege to Jerusalem. And in 70 CE, the Romans destroyed again most of the city. Their general Titus, who would later go on to become an emperor, knew his history. And he decided that on Tisha B'Av, he was going to destroy the temple again. And so that morning, he marched on the Temple Mount, set fire to the temple, and began to take it down rock from rock from rock. Titus also gathered all of the priests, and he gathered all of the priests' families and children, and he killed them. All of this on Tisha B'Av. And in somewhat more recent memory, when the Jews were being expelled from everywhere in Europe, in England, it was on Tisha B'Av in the year 1290, that the crown decided the Jews were no longer welcome. And in the year 1492, Spain also expelled all of the Jewish people. Tisha B'Av, as you can see, is a day with a whole lot of memory for the Jewish people. And not a single one of those memories is good. 
The Roman Christians allowed the Jews to come into Jerusalem on this one day because it was on this one day that the Jews realized that the protection that they thought they had from God and the blessing that they thought they had from God because of their faith did not always come. This day reminded the Jewish people that they were the persecuted, they were the tortured, they were the oppressed, and they were the defeated. Tisha B'Av is a day, above all else, of grief. Last Sunday evening here at the church, we had a conversation that encompassed all of the different parts of this sermon series that we're doing right now, Wonder, Grief, and Hope. And Pastor Dinah shared this brief antidote when she was talking about grief. She was preparing for the teaching, and she went to our staff counselor. We have a staff counselor named Cheryl Dunn, who's absolutely wonderful. So she went to Cheryl. She asked Cheryl, do you have any advice on grief? I've got to teach on it coming up. And Cheryl immediately said, yes. Do it. But our Western culture doesn't seem to do grief very well. In one of his recent meditations, Father Richard Rohr said that Western civilization as a whole does not know how to hold on to darkness. Rather than teach a path of descent, Christianity in the West preached a system of winners and losers, a prosperity gospel. Few Christians have been taught to hold the paschal mystery of both death and resurrection and how to acknowledge and address the dark side of the faith. We tend to avoid healthy grieving. We shun any kind of darkness as evil. We prefer to go around this grief and this darkness, doing whatever we can to avoid it. We put on our masks and we present a strong front to those around us or we embrace that negative so much that we suffocate and bury ourselves within it. When I was 17, one of my best friends died. And to say that she was a best friend is actually to put it lightly. Because of some things in my childhood, I had developed this feeling of being alone in the world. I did not find any, I didn't find any idea of permanence I couldn't find permanence in any idea of family or love or friendship. And this friend, for me, became a symbol of hope for all these things that I thought were missing from my life. She became a symbol for my hope of love and friendship and peace that lasted. And when I was 17, she died. I did not grieve her passing well. Her death began a long and deep depression for me. I both avoided real healthy ways of grief and I buried myself so deep in depression that I held that depression to be a core part of who I was. I identified myself as my depression. My inability to grieve sent me into a wilderness that lasted almost a decade. Had I known that embracing a, a healthy walk in the darkness of grief, grief, I could have averted many years instead of stubbornly trudging around in the darkness. In her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, Barbara Brown Taylor paraphrases another woman to say that there are no dark emotions. There are just unskillful ways of coping with emotions that we cannot bear. 
The emotions themselves are conduits of pure energy that want something from us. They want to wake us up. They want to tell us something we need to know, to break the ice around our hearts and to move us to act. My own sadness and anger and sense of betrayal and fear at having lost my friend were not dark emotions. Again, sadness and anger and fear are not dark emotions. Rather, these emotions are real, honest, natural ways to act when faced with a tragic event. It was my lack of skill in coping with them that led to the more pain and suffering. Father Rohr goes on to say in his meditations that darkness is a good and necessary teacher. It is not to be avoided, denied, run from, or explained away. First, like Ezekiel the prophet, we must eat the scroll that is lamentation, wailing, and moaning in our belly, and only eventually become sweet as honey. The reality is that these feelings, this sadness, anger, and fear, have something to teach us. And I did eventually learn the lessons from mine, but it took a long time. We have in the world around us a lot of things to grieve today. Hurricanes, earthquakes, and other natural disasters have ravaged our neighbors' homes both near and far. Beginning with 9-11, terrorism has accomplished its goal of casting fear over us. Suddenly, all that we thought was unassailable in the West has become vulnerable. Beyond that, our nation is seemingly losing its place as as a worldwide leader in many areas that we once took for granted. The economic crash in 2008 reminded us that even our markets are not invincible. Our streets are still filled with hopeless people, with the homeless and with the hungry. We have shootings in our schools and our churches. And our own church is declining in membership, money, influence, and participation. These are all real, tragic events. And I'm sure that a lot of you in this room have personal stories of grief to tell as well. But these are things that we actually really do need to grieve. We need to realize that it's natural to feel the sadness, to feel the fear, and to feel the anger in the face of these things. We heard from Joni last week about Stephen Ministry, and I'll reiterate that Stephen Ministry is something that is extremely valuable here on our campus. And if you want to learn more about it, find Joni and talk to her. Stephen Ministry training gives us four steps when we handle feelings of grief. The first step is simply to recognize that you are having the feelings. Notice what is actually going on inside of you. The second step is to actually accept those feelings. They're not to be bottled up, discarded, regarded as something to avoid, but something to be accepted. The third step that Stephen Ministry offers is to express the feelings both in prayer and to somebody that you trust around you. And finally, the fourth step is to trust and hope. Before this sermon series, we went through the stories of the Exodus because they're stories of change. They're stories of fear and slavery and a God who set us free. We set this up 
going into this sermon series, which we knew would have dark moments because we wanted to be able to remember the stories of wonder that happened before and remember that there are stories of hope. We've been in the dark place before and we've been through the dark place to walk out on the other side. Father Rohr comments that this is why Jesus says it's by faith that you will be saved. It is only by a foundational trust or faith in the midst of suffering that some ability to bear darkness and uncertainty and learning to be comfortable with paradox and mystery that you move from the first half of life to the second. And before I tell one final story, I'd like to say this. If you are grieving today, you are not alone. If you look around you at the people in this room, you'll see faces that have handled grief before and maybe are handling grief right now. If you need to grieve something, if you're handling something poorly or if you want to do it better, you have people around you that want to talk, that will talk. You can talk to any of the pastors that we have here. You can talk to our Stephen ministers or Cheryl, our counselor. In his book, Reality, Grief, and Hope, Hebrew scripture scholar Walter Brueggemann describes one of the tasks of the prophet as to model grief that acknowledges loss in a way that invites the people to fully, deeply, and knowingly engage in actual life experience. One such more modern prophet is a man named Horatio Spafford. In 1871, Horatio lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. Later that year, in what became known as the Great Chicago Fire, he and his family were ruined financially. Two years later, he was beginning to get back onto his feet, and he decided that he and his family needed a vacation. They'd go to England. Right before he and his family were set to depart, he ran into some zoning issues, and he had to stay behind to take care of business. He still put his wife and his four daughters on that ship, and they started traveling to England. But as that ship crossed the Atlantic, it hit another ship, and the ship sank. All four of Horatio's daughters were lost. His wife sent him a telegram from England beginning with the words, I alone was saved. Horatio boarded the next ship he could to join his wife in England. And as his ship neared the place where his four daughters had drowned, He wrote a song. The lyrics of his song inspired the next song that we will hear and listen to today. As we join together in worship with this song, I ask you to reflect on Horatio's story. Reflect on that which you've grieved well and reflect on that which you might need to grieve a little bit better. Reflect on the lessons that you've actually learned in darkness and in pain.